Welcome to the Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. As we learn more about depressions, we are also learning that there are other components or domains within the notion of a clinical depression that need to be better understood, such as the notion of a cognition in relationship to the presentation and characteristics of a depression. One of the leading researchers in this area is Roger McIntyre. He is a professor of psychiatry and pharmacology at the University of Toronto in Canada, and he is also chairman and executive director of the Brain and Cognitive Discovery Foundation, also in Canada. And frankly, he wears a lot of other clinical hats as well. He is kind enough to join us to explain the notion of cognitions in their relationship to depression. Dr. McIntyre, thank you so much for being with us. Abby, thanks for inviting me. It's a pleasure. You brought attention to the notion of cognitions, again, in relationship to depressions. Let's talk a little bit about explaining what a cognition is. I think even though people may not really understand in great detail a depression, they know less about what a cognition is. So can you explain to us what do you mean when you use the word cognitions? It's such an important starting point, Abby, in the conversation to define what we're talking about and is loosely described as the ability to think, but it's a much more complicated phenomenology than that. Over the years, I've attempted to find a organizational framework for myself to think about it, and what I've arrived at sounds a lot like the Beatles, it's the Fab Four. In other words, there's four separate atoms or subdomains of cognition that comprise the broader, conflated phenomenology called cognition. They are executive function, attention, memory, and processing speed. My experience has been that attention, memory, and processing speed are fairly self-explanatory to most people. Executive functions are a bit more complicated. They are characteristic of humans is our ability to plan, to initiate, sequence, to monitor, to inhibit. Many of our thoughts, our feelings and actions all be very complicated. All these subdomains are adversely affected in people with depression. Is it perhaps an appropriate analogy to say that depression is making the cognitive aspects, the computer aspects of our brains not working right? It really is. And for me, philosophically, what I would offer is this notion that depressive disorders, by their very name, give primacy to the disturbance in mood. My proffer is that I think that depressive disorders are actually both mood and cognitive disorders. When I trained as a medical student and early in my career, I was always told that cognitive impairment is a secondary phenomenon to being depressed, so-called pseudo-dementia. And what's implicit in that is that if you treat the depression effectively, the cognition would improve back to its baseline state. Conceptually also important about that notion of pseudo-dementia is that cognition is not a core disturbance in depression. It turns out that there's no doubt about it, that some people we see with depression who have cognitive problems, those four subdomains I mentioned, with their mood and boost cognitive tests demonstrate in the past 50% that the disturbance in cognition is a core dimension of depression. It grabbed my attention as a clinician and as an academic because it was a very common complaint patients had. 
I think everyone who's listening is aware of the fact that we still struggle with better ways to improve functional outcomes in our patients. You mentioned the word pseudo-dementia, and I just want to spend a few more seconds on that because we do not use that term. I haven't heard it being used in quite some time, and yet when I was in training, it was quite commonly used because people looked as if they were demented. They weren't. They were actually depressed. Well, it's notionally something I think it makes sense. People can understand that if, you're in, if your mood is decreased and you've lost motivation and you're fatigued, you haven't slept well, it doesn't take a lot. That's going to adversely affect cognitive problems. You know, we all agree that that's the case. It's really critical, so it's inaccurate, that all or most of the problems are all a secondary effect of that or so-called epiphenomenon. Pseudo-dementia was in medicine for a long, long time. I think it also propagates an inaccuracy, is that cognition is somehow secondary in depression. Look at the neurobiology of depression, at least as we look at it today. The model of depression, what's really abnormal in the brain is there's something wrong with what we call the brain topology. In other words, circuits in the networks in the brain, which are well characterized, are not in a normal functional interconnectivity. I use a metaphor of your motherboard on your computer. When those circuits and networks are not in appropriate interplay, that's when you start to have a slowed-down computer. It's not functioning properly. The brain's no different. And the circuits, the networks, the regions of the brain, which have been identified as normal in people with depression, include regions of the brain that subserve mood and affect regulation, but also involve regions of the brain that subserve cognition. So in addition to having phenomenological evidence that cognition is separate from the mood phenomenology, we have really highly replicated neurobiological evidence that in the brains of people with depression, the cognitive regions are also adversely affected. So the unequivocal conclusion is cognition is a core disturbance in these patients. How do we measure that? Do we have a sense that that needs to be one of the key things in the assessment of a depression, like when we use the Madras or the Beck scales or any of the other scales? Do we adequately measure, do we know how to measure cognitive dysfunction in depression? It's such a critical question, and, and I think this is really critical not just for us in academia, but also in the clinical ecosystem. When I think about measurement, you mentioned the mattress, other rating scales like the PAMP, 17 item, et cetera, the PHQ-9, the QUID. There's many of these types of scales that clinicians know. There's no question if one was to look at those scales and you look at the items on the scale, there are items that are dedicated to aspects of cognition. For example, you notice impairment in your concentration, questions like that. The difficulty with relying on these types of scales, that is, these depression scales, is that they don't have sufficient items dedicated to the disparate domains of cognition affected. Moreover, the complexity that cognition of people in day-to-day lives is not adequately captured by these scales. So that really invites the need for us to have a more deliberate, focused, and validated scale to look at cognition. In, in academic centers, people do research and there's long batteries, take a couple of hours in many cases. They often require professional interpretation. And in, in other cases, they're quite expensive. 
this is not really lending itself to busy office practice. Many clinicians have asked, well, what about using a screening tool, mini mental status exam or the MOCA, the Montreal Cognitive Assessment? Those two screening tools are best known in the world of dementia. My reply has been that those screening tools don't have the sensitivity to detect the deficits that we see in a young person, 35, 45 years old with depression, where your aim is to look for cognition. Where does that leave us? Well, it leaves us with some other tools. And what I would say is, is that we have a couple, and the way to think about it is self-rated and objectively rated. And, you know, Abby, one thing that we've all observed as clinicians is that a patient's estimation of their cognitive abilities sometimes aligns with the reality, but in many cases it doesn't. In other words, self-reported cognitive functions don't really correlate that well with objective measures. Therein is a reason why we may want to consider both. Now, the cognitive measures that we have used at my center, University of Toronto, for many years are, are free of charge. We like that price point. And one called the PDQ-5, the Perceived Deficits Questionnaire 5, it's a self-rated instrument of cognition. A very popular objective measure of cognition we've used, also free of charge, all available through Dr. Google, you download them, is a digit simple substitution test, ESSP, very simple, 90 seconds, patient can complete it with minimal instruction, and it's very interpretable, easy to use, the norms are available. Recently, my colleagues around the world and I, as part of an organization called the Think Consortium, validated a tool called the Think It tool, T-H-I-N-C, not K, but C, Think It tool free of charge, downloadable, and that tool is digitalized, it's self-administered, and it's completed on a tablet, iOS or Android tablet in the waiting room, and within about six to ten minutes, you'll be able to arrive at an estimation of your patient's overall cognitive abilities. I think that in 2018, 2019, 2020 going forward, I think that the standard of care does involve, in many cases, specifically using one of these tools to assess cognition. When we see an older person and there is some concurrent real dementia, how do you separate the cognitive presentation from someone with significant dementia or even mild cognitive impairment, but you know some, some phenomena there from depression? How do you use this cognitive approach? Has that been worked out yet? It's an area that's been hotly uh, is being looked at right as a hot area in the field in terms of trying to disambiguate the cognitive impairment of someone who's, say, 50 with depression versus the cognitive impairment of what might be MCI, mild cognitive impairment, this insidious deterioration in the memory, which for many unfortunate people declares itself later on as Alzheimer's or some other dementing disorder. The Venn diagram, there's going to be some overlapping circles here in the sense that the deficits that we see, for example, in MCI or Alzheimer's disease often involve all the four domains that I mentioned, but certainly memory is the best known and the most notable, but other, all the domains are actually affected. The way I sort this out is less cross-sectionally, that is, less looking at the phenomenology cross-sectionally and more on the history and not just the personal history, but looking at the family history. For those who are listening today who like some of the specifics and the granularity, there are criteria for amnestic MCI with respect to the standard deviation of deficit in memory and the, the way it affects a person's quality of life. So there are some of these sort of specifics that are out there. 
But quite frankly, in our experience, we've had many occasions where patients with depression also have one to two standard deviations deficit in cognition, and they don't have dementia. So that itself, in my view, would not be enough to fully disambiguate. It goes back to something that most of us are time poor with, and that's taking the time with the patient and taking a good history, good family history. You absolutely want to rule out secondary causes. Is the patient taking medications that are anti-cognitive, like benzodiazepines? Is the patient using alcohol to excess or using illicit substances, for example? One area of mine that's been an interest for many years is comorbidity, not with thyroid, which we all know to be affecting cognition, but obesity and diabetes. Obesity and diabetes leaves half of people with depression, and we know that obesity and diabetes both are anti-cognitive. So it really is a task to try and sort out some of these other confounding factors that's really taking a good history. One of the challenges that I am facing down here, and I'm sure people elsewhere, and I know in Canada as well, is the number of folks who come here who are taking over-the-counter CBD oils, cannabinoid products. I am very concerned because, personally, I think it confounds the ability to do a really good diagnosis. Do you see that problem as well? How do you approach this growing comfort by the general population to be using cannabinoid products? It's such an important topic, Abby, and I think there's been, as you know, there's been public changes in attitude towards the use of cannabis, and not just public, but there's been political and cultural and legal changes. Canada will be the first country globally to make the entire nation legal with respect to recreational marijuana. It's a long story. There's a lot of detail which is to underscore because cannabis itself is a delivery vehicle of hundreds of different chemicals, the most well-known being THC-9 and CBD. But keep it brief, THC-9 is the euphorium. It's the one that's very psychoactive. And the preponderance of evidence indicates it does have many adverse effects on cognition as well as anhedonia and also induces psychosis in those who are at risk of psychosis. CBD looks pharmacologically to be a different story. There are reasons to believe that it could be in possession of some benefits on the brain in terms of mitigating psychosis, maybe be pro-cognitive in some cases. Notice I'm saying maybe and maybe this and maybe that. Just don't know. Most of the evidence is very preliminary. Patients will very often ask about using medicinal marijuana, using CBD oils from health food stores, this type of thing. I think the bottom line is we just don't have the evidence yet to recommend it. But as an academic, what I would say is that there's reasons for us to study it, but I just don't, as a psychiatrist, see that the evidence supports its recommendation at all in patients with depression or bipolar disorder. I can see it becoming an increasing problem because so many people look at it as such a benign, over-the-counter component to their medication regimen. And when we look at cognitions, as you just said, and I appreciate your focusing on it, it is a variable. It truly is a variable and needs to be put on the list. Yeah, it sure is. Over the years, we seem to have better defined subtypes of depressions. Can someone, because you said that cognitive issues are like one of the core domains of depression, but can someone be depressed without a cognitive impairment? 
that a possibility? It's a really nice question, and the answer is yes. There seems to be a subset of people who have depression who perform in the normative range. One of the challenges, Abby, we have with the interpretation of that is what was the patient's baseline status? person is experiencing cognitive impairment because they're depressed, that person may still look like they're performing quite well. Yes, some people can, in fact, not have cognitive problems, but the challenge we've had is, is that we don't know where they started, but because of the reserve, they still uh, turn out to be reasonably well. Two populations motively that are particularly at risk of exhibiting cognitive problems are people with highly recurrent depression. It turns out that with each episode of depression, on average, people lose between 3 to 5% of cognitive ability, a neurotoxic effect across time with each episode. The second of two groups, not the only, but just I'll just underscore groups, are people with psychotic depression or highly severe depression. They particularly at risk, but that's not to imply people with mild depression are not cognitively impaired as well. So I like your question because these people do have minimal or no cognitive impairment, even though they have significant depression. And that in itself is something very, very interesting, this different type of biotype, if you will, of depression. This is a fascinating and simply say huge topic. I am so appreciative of your work and the fact that you are looking at cognitive issues in depression. It will help us better diagnose and hopefully better treat these folks. Dr. Roger McIntyre is a professor of psychiatry in Toronto. Dr. McIntyre, I must tell you, sir, I have more questions than we have time. So I want to, I just want to say thank you, and uh, hopefully we can continue with this down the road as more material on this topic comes out. I thank you so much for being with us. Thank you very much, Abby, for hosting me for this program. It's been a pleasure for myself.